Exodus chapter number three in your Bibles. We're going to read a couple verses and pray together. And I thank you and um, am encouraged by your faithfulness every week. In fact, all through the, the foundational series, which this is a continuation of, your faithfulness has been a blessing. And also, let me just say, um, that when I mentioned that if you wanted to encourage me, um, that you would come to hear Brother Pauly preach, and so many of you did. And uh, I just want to thank you for that, because it did indeed encourage me. Exodus 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. A lot of questions about what kind of priest he was. Was he a priest of, of idols or priest of the true God? And I've read so many things about that in recent weeks and in recent many, many years past. And I'm pretty convinced that he was a, a priest of the true God. But... Um, not enough to spend hours on it like some folks have. Verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Our Father, we are on holy ground tonight, as always, when we open up your word. And we are thankful and yet needy, Lord. Thankful for your word, but needy to have your help through your spirit to understand it and to live it, and I pray that we will. And as always, as we pray here so often, dear God, you know the hearts of the people here. You know which ones are tired. Strengthen them, please. Strengthen them. And all of us, in Jesus' name, amen. We noted last time in our study that Moses, in chapter 3, is now man. He is a husband, he is a shepherd, he is a father, a son-in-law of about 80 years of age. It's been 40 long, life-changing years. How many times have we mentioned that this was a school, the school of Midian, if you will? And this was a man who was once the prince, or at least a prince of Egypt, and at 80 years of age now, you can also be sure that Moses is completely settled in his, in his new life, if you will. Midian is his home. It's familiar territory. You know what it's like to come home from a trip and just your house, your area, your street, your state. It's very familiar. His family is here. He has a, a good family. His, his flocks, which means his entire business that he built, is there. He's learning meekness, the Bible says, the meekest man on the face of the earth. So he's been in school, but he's also just plain settled. He's there, going through his life. His blood pressure is probably about 120, over 60, low cholesterol. Obviously, his bills are all paid. I mean, without any doubt, he's the most talented knowledgeable and thus the most respected man in all of Midian. So that again, Moses is an 80-year-old man who's looking at his middle and then soon-to-be sunset years with a lot of security and a lot of routine. In a desert, there's not a lot of changes in all those years. And of course, that is precisely what makes Exodus chapter 3 and this burning bush so remarkable. Verse 2 again, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. 
And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt or consumed. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of that bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. I want you to notice how God immediately, he comes to Moses and he uses his name. God takes the name of Moses and with his own mouth calls him out, not once but twice, Moses, Moses. I remember the very first time I heard a celebrity call me by, by my name. It was, it was a young man. It was Don King, you know, the promoter, the boxing promoter with the hair that stood straight up. He saw my name tag at the hotel where I was a front, front desk manager, and he looked at me and he said, Jim Blaylock, how you doing, son? I knew he was, of course. And I held onto my wallet and I said, I'm good, Mr. King. <laughs> And then for three entire days, every time he would pass by um, and would need something or whatever, he would say, Jim Blaylock, my illustrious, indefatigable friend, blah, 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 whatever. And it was so strange hearing someone so well-known call me by my personal name. You can imagine how strange it was here in the desert, all by himself as always, for Moses minding his own business, and suddenly it's not a celebrity who calls out his name twice. It is instead God himself. You'll notice all capital letters in verse 2, and then, of course, in verse 4, all capital letters. This is Jehovah. And then it says Elohim, God, calls to him. He is the creator of the universe, and he says, Moses, Moses. And you know, the message that would send to Moses and the reminder it should be for you and I tonight is that Jehovah God, the creator, unlike all of those Egyptian idols and unlike all the little gods that, that man has made and religion itself, the true God is a personal God. In fact, he's a personal God who is intimately knowledgeable and interested in his creation. You'll notice the other name he mentions in the text. Go to verse 5. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for thy, the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. So we mentioned last week. One thing Moses needed to know right now, this is not some Egyptian idol. This is not Pharaoh. This is the Creator, and the Creator is holy. If you think, if you wonder why I'm not excited and thrilled about the Chosen series. My number one reason is because it brings God down. We serve a holy God. Verse 6, moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Can I ask you a question? Why did God use the name Jacob in this text? You ever notice that? Why did he use the name that he changed, which was the name Israel? Remember, 
The name Jacob means supplanter. It means deceiver. It was changed to Israel by God, a much more noble and princely name, prince with God. But again, God is talking to Moses in very personal terms. He's telling him, I am the God of Jacob. Imperfect, fallible, human Jacob. And he says, Moses, I am the God of your fathers. Amram, yes, but also Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. This is God's way of telling Moses, you may not know me, but I know you. I know everything about you. And then he says this, notice verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I told you, our God is a personal God who is intimately aware of all of the details of his creation. And he says, A, I've seen the afflictions. I've seen them all along. For anybody and everybody that lived in Egypt during those hundreds of years, for their 80-year period of time, or 90, however long they lived, I saw all of their afflictions. And he says, I know their sorrows. I don't know about them, I know their sorrows. Sorrows and afflictions that caused the children of Israel to cry out. And they did cry out for a very long time. The only question is, who's going to hear all those cries? Their cries from their oppression, who's actually listening to them and hearing them? Because the land of Egypt has all kinds of gods. There's a God for everything in Egypt. They're scattered throughout the land. Are they going to hear that cry? Look at verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. God says their, their cries have come to me. And I've seen and I've heard them. And you know, you can ask the question, were the children of Israel crying unto, quote, Jehovah God? Or had they cried for many years unto their idols? As we see later on that they themselves had embraced. And then finally they cried to Jehovah God. Or is it possible that they were just crying for their affliction? That they were just crying because it was so hard? I can tell you this, whatever it was, what matters is what happened. And what always happens is that God hears the cries. Moses didn't hear their cries way down there in Midian. He was going about his business. Ra and Anubis, they didn't hear their cries. They were dead idols. Pharaoh certainly didn't hear their cries. But God did. And he also says that he sees the oppression Pastor, you don't understand at work, this is coming, this person is against me. God sees it. He really does. Whatever oppression, he sees it. And now he's about to do something remarkable about it. Verse 7 again, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know, I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians 
and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Think about that for a minute. You know, when Moses hears this, here's this I have seen and I have heard and I know. And now, Moses, guess what? I am come down. Remember, he's in a desert. He's down there in Midian. He's far away. I am come down to deliver them. Moses, without a doubt, is thinking, amen. God is coming. And God is going to come down and do this mighty deliverance. He's going to do something about this injustice. Well, hold your camels, Moses. Because verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee, Moses, unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, Egypt. Wait, 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 what? Now he's a shepherd. Four decades have passed. That's a lot of water under the bridge. So how is it then that in verse 8, God says, I am come down from heaven. I'm come down to deliver them. And in verse 10, he says, come here, Moses, I'm going to send you to do it. Which is it? Send who? Send you, Moses. And Moses' answer is, who am I? Look at verse 11. And Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? I told you he's been in school. There is the meekest man in all the Bible that the book of Deuteronomy tells us about. Forty years ago, he was more than willing and able in his mind to deliver the people. He would go out, it came into his heart to visit his people, and he would go out there, and he, was gonna, he killed an Egyptian, he was going to deliver those people. But the school of Midian has taught him a lot about man's limitations and about man's power. You say, Pastor, if, if man is limited in his power and in his ability, then why is God calling Moses to do this task? How's he going to do it? Well, that's verse 12. And God said, and he said, God says, certainly, I will be with thee. That's how he's coming down. If you don't understand and, and embrace the power of this promise, because it's the same promise that Jesus gave to you. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you. I, if you don't understand the power of this promise, and then therefore our responsibility in embracing the promise and going out into that dark world, I am with thee. How many times has God demonstrated that he was with Joseph? That he was with Moses? even as he continued to use regular, everyday human means in Moses' life. For example, God was with Moses as a little baby, so he, he used, God used Moses' mother. His sister was used. As a matter of fact, even Pharaoh's daughter was being used. It was God who was there. It was God who was working. And it's God who is there and God who is working in your life, even if he's using human means. Understand that it's God is doing it. And it's here, beloved, that we come to Moses' really second great decision in all of his life. 
the second major decision that he has to make in the past 80 years. The first one, 40 years before this, Moses had to say no. And now he has to say yes. No and yes. I'm telling you tonight that those are typically the two greatest decisions that every believer will have to make at various times in his or her life. A lot of things in life we can't choose. There are a lot of things in life right now, this very moment, there are things in life that you have no choice about that are out of your control. When Moses was a little baby, he was placed in the banks of the Nile in a little cradle. He couldn't help that. He couldn't help that. When he was seen and then taken by Pharaoh's daughter into Pharaoh's palace, adopted as it were, he couldn't help that. He had no choice in that matter. When he was miraculously given back to his sister Miriam and then to his mother for nurturing and for care, he couldn't help that. That was put upon him. And then as he grew up, he was taught the customs and the religion and the habits of Egypt's culture. And guess what? He couldn't help that. In the same way that Daniel couldn't help that. As a boy, they put Egyptian sandals on his feet. They told him Egyptian stories and they fed him Egyptian food and gave him Egyptian drink. And none of that Moses could help. However, when they tried to say that he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and when they tried to deny the truth of his real birth and his true God, that, beloved, he could deny. And to that he could and did say no. In other words, at a critical time when Moses was come of age as God gave him this choice. He had the faith to refuse the money, the power, all the fame, and the glory that was associated with being a son of Pharaoh's daughter. Just think about that for a moment. Moses was the grandson of Pharaoh, which simply means that there were at his disposal riches beyond any Hebrew's wildest imagination. There was pleasure and power galore and all of it right there in his hand with that scepter. All of it in his grasp. But Moses said no. And we know even more by the New Testament revelation about Moses. He basically said no. Jacobet is my mother. Miriam is my sister. My brothers are slaves. And my God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now I've thought a lot about that. If Moses... We're like the average religious person today, and especially the, the pragmatic, success-oriented crowd in, a, in America's really post-Christian society. Undoubtedly, he would have rationalized his, his denunciation, his renunciation, and said that, you know, he could do more for the Hebrews by staying in the palace. He could do more for them by having all of that power than, than leaving that influence. He could have said that. In fact, Satan may well have tempted him to think those things. But instead, he takes this step of faith. And it's a step that we have to take. And it's not an easy step ever. It might even be an agonizing, heart-wrenching step. Folks, I don't doubt that Moses had great affection for his adoptive mother. No doubt he did. 
But at the same time, he knew that he belonged to God. And he knew that he belonged to the people of God. I tell our young people all the time, in Sunday school and elsewhere, every day of their lives, nearly the world will say to you, don't you know that you're a child of evolution? Don't you know, the world says, that you're just an accident of cosmic chance and nothing more than that? Don't you know that you're here just by accident? And I say then, and I say to any young people here even, you don't have to accept that. You do not have to say yes to that. The devil comes to you and says, don't you know that you belong to me? In so many ways, he says, don't you know that you will always be my child? You do not have to accept that. My junior year at Martin County, I took a class called Bible History. Martin County High School. Now, it was kind of like grape nuts, neither grape nor nuts, or bread fruit, neither bread nor fruit. It was neither Bible nor history. And I remember the first day of class, brand new day. I, I wish I could call her name. I know her well, but she, I think she still lives in the area. I don't know. The brand new class, it was a test class, really. And our teacher said, now, students, I want you all to bring a Bible to class. I already carried a Bible. But every week, I want you to bring your Bible. But I don't want you to read it in our class as though it's literal or true. This isn't, quote, that kind of a class. In other words, we're all supposed to just accept her word that the Bible is just a book of literature. It's not, it's not literally true. Well, as you can imagine, I'm a preacher boy. I, it, that was an interesting and fun semester for me. But it was also the first time in my life as a Christian that I had to publicly, in sort of a public forum, say no. Literally say no to the world and the first time I ever refused to follow my teacher's instructions. But how could I not do otherwise? I mean, what if, what if, my, if my history teacher said that Pol Pot was a good and a great man? Do I have to follow that and believe that? If I got a test question, and this was very typical in one of her tests, and it says Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by blank. And her answer, what we had studied in class, was... An earthquake. Natural disasters. I don't know how she knew that. That's not written anywhere. Except in some liberal's textbook, you know, 1,800 years later. Well, I wrote down fire and brimstone. I used to watch her when she graded papers because I could tell when she got to mine, she'd get this red mark right here and just whoop, 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 whoop. One time she said, Mr. Blaylock, she was all flustered. Would you like to stand and tell the class exactly how the Red Sea was parted? And it was a true-false question, I remember. And she believed that they really crossed this, the old liberal phony excuse. They crossed the Reed Sea, R-E-E-D, which was only about three feet deep, which Pharaoh's army drowned in the kiddie side of the, you know, the shallow pool. I don't know. That's a miracle. But she asked me for my explanation, and, and I remember, and it's no great mystery, so I had a Bible. We all had our Bible, and I opened it up, and it was right here in Exodus 14, and I just read it. And I read, Moses stretched out his hand, and God sent a strong east wind, and that was it. And I said, that's what Moses said, 
And he ought to know because he was there and you weren't. (laughs) Now, I shouldn't have said that. It was rude. But that little red thing started to show on her neck, I noticed. I finally said, now I thought about this through the years. I finally, as first time publicly, I had to like take a stand. So what? I finally said no in, as a junior in high school to a class and to a philosophy. But, but do you see what Moses said no to? Moses was my hero in high school. When I had to give a speech in speech class, we had to nominate anybody we wanted for president because Jimmy Carter was running, and so that was what your speech was about. I nominated Moses, and I gave all the reasons why. Moses said no to everything, meaning fame, pleasure, power, religion, wealth, And you know, beloved, anybody who truly wants to be a servant of God, I mean a servant of God in this life, you're eventually going to have to say no. You know, over in John chapter 12, our Lord Jesus gives what is probably the best definition of a servant of God in all the Bible. And don't you want to be a servant of God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant? And the Lord Jesus in John 12 says, If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And where I am, there shall my servant be. Well, what is a servant according to that text? Here's what it says. You can even look at it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. In other words, a servant, a real servant of God, begins his glorious service by saying no. No to his own life. No to his flesh. Paul calls it dying to self. And that's exactly what Moses did. Moses said, no to this life. No to what I could have and and they wanted me to have. And yes, Moses was willing to say no, but now he has to say yes. And every Christian has to do both. You have to say no to the world, no to the devil, no to the flesh. And then when God says, I want you to do this, you have to say yes. And he says a lot of things in here that he wants us to do. And you must say yes. God said, Moses, I will send thee. And Moses' first response to God was, who am I? That's good, isn't it? That's what we got. Who are we? If you think you're awesome, then I think God's going to send you back to some more time in the Midian uh, desert. Who am I? His second response was to remember what the children of Israel thought about him. Look at verse 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come up unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? You see, the first question Moses asked was, Who am I? The next question is, Who are you? Because they're going to ask me. It's pretty much the entire foundation of all human philosophy and religion. Do you ever think about that? Man wants to know, Who am I? 
and who is God. And what's interesting and I think powerful about this text is that when Moses said, who am I that I should do this, God doesn't really answer. He doesn't look at him and tell him who he is. Not in the way philosophers always want the answer. Who am I, he said. Well, guess what? God did not say, well, you're Moses of Egypt. You are the highly educated, highly trained, equipped, qualified man. Your gifts, your talents, your bloodline. Look in the mirror, Moses, and say, I am, I am. Somebody, somebody. I can't lose, I can't lose with the stuff I use. With it. No, say that, no. That's not what happened. What did happen is that God answered Moses' question with the answer that doesn't answer his question directly. Moses says, who am I? And God's answer is, I will be with you. That's it. In other words, man's identity. Say, Pastor, who are you? You know, I could throw out anything and everything degrees, educate, all that, and just say, well, God's with me. That's enough, right? Who am I? And God says nothing about him. He just says, I'm with you. That's who you really are. And who are you tonight? If you're a saved, blood-bought child of the living God, and he is with you, that's enough. Look at verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, thou, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Now, beloved, I want you to think about this for a moment. Moses said, Lord, when I go, you're sending me to go deliver Israel from the world empire. What do I tell them? Who do I tell them has sent me? Because after all, the last time I tried to go out there and be a deliverer and a, and a defender of the Jews, um, it's taken me 40 years to recover from that. And of course, Moses wonders. Of course, he wonders, what am I going to say to them? I'm going to walk up to these people I haven't seen in 40 years. And I'm saying, well, here's what happened. I was out in the desert watching the sheep, and suddenly there was a bush over here burning. And it was on fire, but it didn't burn away. And so anyway, I heard this voice, and it said that I was going to come and deliver you from the world's empire. And they look at Moses and say, are you crazy? It's hot in that desert. He's stroking. Besides Moses, you see this pyramid over here? We started that pyramid when you were still in charge. And it's 40 years later, and we're not quite finished with it yet. And here you just show up. You've been seeing mirages in that desert. And then what's Moses supposed to say? When they naturally say, we're supposed to believe this? Does he say, well, guy, you know, I guess you should have been there. You had to be there, and Moses tries to convince them, no, God, Moses needed something more. And you know, a name for the God who called him is a good place to start. And God answers him. But he answers in a way with a name that 
no idol, no earthly deity would or could ever utter. He says in verse 14, Say unto the children of Israel, I am that I am. Say, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, think about it. It means everything. For one thing, it means eternal and unchangeable. He didn't say, I was who I was. I will be who I will be. And you know, the greatest of men or women on the earth, the best they could ever say is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Only God can say, I am that I am. That means self-existent, unchangeable, which he says in the text, eternal. You and I, you know, we have to say, well, I am that which I've become. Or I am that which I was born. Or I am that circumstances maybe have made and developed me. God said nothing like that. I am that I am, meaning God's name is underived. That name means absolute, self-dependent, and therefore unalterable forever. And Moses, you take that name with you. You take that name with you, and I'm telling you, beloved, from this point in the book of Exodus and this foundational two books we've studied, from that point, all you're going to see is God living up to his name. All-powerful self-existent, on his throne, involved in the lives of his creation. And I remind you, Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was what? I am. And the people fell backward. The name of the eternal God. So that tonight, you know something? Since God is the great I am who always is who he is, then therefore we serve the exact same God that Moses served. The exact same God who spoke to Moses speaks to me through this book and did so today. Remind you that God is about to establish a nation. That's what this is about. It's not a bunch of good stories, fun stories, enigmatic stories of a long time ago. No, no. God is about to establish a people and give them his law so that he can continue to fulfill his great plan of redemption and redeeming lost sinners back to himself. And this work is going to be the singular work of God in the world. It is to this very night. And how does he do it? He does it through people. Frail, human, individual people, some of whom have a little bit of faith. But they have that little bit of faith in a great, mighty God who is the I Am. And I'm saying again tonight... That God is the I am. Your God, your Redeemer, your Savior, and whether He's establishing a people and a nation or a marriage or a church or a family or saving a soul, He still lives up to His name. And in many ways, this is the entire purpose of this book. That's why I'm so glad you're here or listening. This is, look, if you only read the book of Genesis, if we only studied that foundational book, and you didn't have this book, and you went on, you would wonder, were the promises of Abraham ever fulfilled? 
What about those promises and all those things we read about and the words of Joseph at the very end of Genesis? Did they ever come to pass? If you read the historical books without this book, if you were to read Joshua all the way to Esther, you would wonder, who are these people? Where'd they come from? Why are they here and what are they doing? And so that Exodus is God's word as a bridge between the patriarchs and the, and the prophets. An old man is in a bridge. Reminds us that God really is eternal, self-evident, self-existent, personal, real, holy, and all-powerful. It reminds us that in every little detail of Israel's redemption out of the land of Egypt, God takes every tiny detail and He says to us, He says, this is because I have you in mind. When you see that lamb, it's not just a story. It's not just a story of bloodshed. It's a story of a lamb without blemish and without spot, innocent as it were, who had to bleed for those people to be protected from the death angel. And God says this when Jesus takes the, the Passover and says, basically, I am your Passover. I am the lamb without blemish, without spot. Every detail of this redemption, God had you in mind and your redemption in mind. God had his promises in mind. And while empires come and go, like Pharaoh, like Egypt, while empires and dictators and rulers and oppressors come and go, his word and his people abideth forever because he will always live up to his name. Always, until one day we see him face to face. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, as we study it, as we read it, as we embrace it, help us to understand, dear God, that this is, this is your love letter to man, that this is your word. Eternal. For your people to hear, to learn, to be changed by, to believe. And we thank you, Lord, tonight, that on a Wednesday night in a place called Florida in the year 2024, we thank you that you are the I am right now. And we worship you and we want to serve you with all of our hearts. Help us to be able to know when to say yes and when to say no and have the courage and the grace to do them both for your honor and for your glory in Jesus' precious name, amen.